Welcome to the Marriage Doc Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Brian Schrader. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, doctor specializing in couples therapy, and expert on dual couple trauma. I'm so glad that you chose to listen today and check out the podcast. And I'm really excited about getting into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of The Marriage Doc. I am Dr. Brian Schroeder, your host. And we're going to continue discussion on this podcast of uh, the effects on couples in regards to trauma. However, we're going to start with the genetic component of fight, flight, and freeze. We're going to be going over those three components, talking a little bit about them and and where they kind of come from. Then we're going to kind of go the second half of the podcast. We're going to talk about how the effects or what the effects can be on a partner who is married to a trauma survivor. Discuss that a little bit, bring the couple component in, and and we'll kind of uh, wrap up the podcast on that note. So let's get into this. So the genetic response to fear is fight, flight, or freeze response, right? So essentially, when the human brain perceives a threat, it naturally reacts to manage the situation. The fight response is when escape from the identity the identified fear is not necessarily possible and um, a defensive measure may be necessary right flight is the avoidance reaction when we go to escape what is thought to be uh, a possible threat or is perceived as a threat whereas freeze is a way to avoid a threat which is thought to be better kept at a distance now, I'm going to take a side step to this. And, and one time I remember uh, being in a trauma training and the instructor used deer um, as an example. And this may seem silly, but think about it this way. Have you ever driven down the road and there's maybe a herd of deer or there's a deer on the side of the road looks like it's it's going to be coming towards the road but then the the, the beams of your car's lights hit the deer and it just stops right it just kind of freezes so think about that for a moment because in that deer's brain what is happening very quickly is the idea of should i run should i stay should i fight right um and, and that and at least in my situations i've always hoped the deer stays if it's out of the road keep it out of the road right um so that's essentially the freeze response you could you could sum it up to the flight obviously is when the deer has the you know the headlights of your car go into that deer's eyes it may freeze for a second and then boom takes off or, unfortunately, as I've experienced, and I know a number of other people listening likely have, is the deer runs out in front of the car. At times, we hit the deer, or the deer may run into the car, depending on the situation. Right? Uh, a fight response would be um, if a deer, typically not, at least not north central Pennsylvania, we don't have the deer that typically try to fight cars, but I know there are, like, a moose would be a good example, 
like in Colorado or further north in, in Canada um, or other sections of the U.S. where, you know, I remember being in, in a hotel room and seeing on the news several years ago when I was in Denver, Colorado, and this was somewhere in the vicinity of Denver, somebody was honking their horn because the moose was trying to cross the road. This aggravated the moose. The moose then attacked the car, right? And it didn't stop until it died. This could be an example of, of a fight response, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm going to, this, this perceived threat, I'm going to fight it so I can try to survive. The moose example may not be perfect, but it, it's better probably than I'm going to find with a deer, aside from if a deer sees maybe a bobcat or a bear and it's, you know, or another deer coming into its territory, another male, right? Probably the best one in which, you know, hey, I'm I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to fight you because I see that as my, maybe my best F, my best opportunity to survive. Okay. So these responses happen on a cognitive and somatic level, okay? The individual experiencing fight, flight, and or freeze response may experience rapid and or reduced heartbeat, hyperventilation, a thought of fear such as increased anxiety regarding the thought of an assault. Um, there's a great book by Russell Vanderpool, right? And it's The Body Keeps the Score. Great read if you haven't. Um, there's an example in the book in which a, uh, from what I remember, a guy's walking into a park, right? And all of a sudden, a guy comes up. Um, I can't remember he had, if he had a weapon, but there was a perceived threat here. The individual that was walking into the park froze, just completely froze. Described in the book is that basically everything this guy sees is, is like watching a movie. And he gets robbed and, and whatnot, and some other things happen. But this is a good example of how, you know, you could just, in that moment, your, your body just completely takes over. And, you know, naturally, like it says, our heartbeat reduces, hyperventilation, a thought of fear, such as increased anxiety because of the thought of an assault. Now, again, this doesn't have to be that an assault takes place. I know the example I gave from the book is that an assault took place, but that doesn't even have to be. The idea is where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And if the, the brain takes this and goes with it, then we're going to be perceiving that there's a threat and, and these things can happen. So the mind then quickly makes the decision regarding the necessary response due to the perceived danger. Whatever the perceived danger is, then the decision is going to come up very quickly on how to handle that situation. A threat which is not imminent consists of decision-making processes happening on a cognitive level, which includes planning and assessing risk. When a threat is happening quickly, a fast response is necessary, okay, which consists of fight, flight, and or freeze responses. The responses, okay, or the response to a perceived threat is dependent on prior successes or similar responses. So for example, maybe in the, in, in, in the past, I can't even speak clearly, my apologies. So maybe in the past, right, 
I perceived um, I perceived a, a certain threat. Maybe walking home at night, um, and I would hear footsteps behind me. So I would perceive that as a threat of somebody maybe coming up. Maybe they're going to attack me. Maybe they're going to try to hurt me in some way. So what I do, so what I did in the past was is that I ran. So I would flight, right? I would take off. I would run home as quick as I could. And, you know, so when I'm in a similar situation, maybe it could be um, nighttime still, but maybe it's lit and, you know, I'm an adult now. But if I still hear footsteps behind me, you know, that thought will come in my mind. What if? What if this person's trying to hurt me? I remember as a kid, I would take off and I'd run and I'd be safe. So I would take off and I would run. Uh, again, whether or not it's necessary, it's the perception that we have from that, you know, which is dependent on prior successes or similar responses. Now, here's another thing. Perhaps in the past, instead of running, I turned around and I went after the person. And I would just go after him and I would start swinging at him. But maybe that ended up getting me in jail. And finding out it was a 70-year-old woman walking behind me or maybe a kid or, you know, this the perception was not valid, right, in that situation, I would likely change my response, right? If I heard that in the future, I'd probably run instead or, you know, it, it wouldn't likely be a fight response. So... Moving on, on a cognitive level, the human brain um, processes situational elements, but in a flexible way, right? So if an individual decides to freeze, then they're likely able to make changes depending on any changes in the environment regarding the threat, right? So let's go back to this walking down the street example really quick. So if I decide to start running, right, because I hear those footsteps, it's dark out, and I remember as a kid, like I got me home safe. So I start running, right? And then I think about it and maybe the footsteps stop or maybe I pay attention and I notice their high heels or maybe for whatever reason, the sound is just not threatening anymore. Maybe I won't flee anymore. Maybe I'll just keep walking or maybe I'll turn around and see who it is and see the environment's not conducive. The threat's not there anymore. I don't need to have that response. Okay. However, if fight or flee responses are used, the flexibility may be limited depending on the threat. Right. So the idea, like I said, um, the fight example. If I if I turn around and just start swinging, and it's an old woman or a kid, it's not really flexible because once I start doing, it, I can't be like, "Oh, my bad." And then turn around and start walking away, right? Um, at the same time, flee responses could also be limited depending on the threat. If, you know, I'm running away and I, I can't get away. Maybe I'm not able to run away. I, I just don't have the capacity or ability to get away. Maybe I come up to a traffic light and there's nowhere to go. Um Maybe I run, but I run down a, an alley or something and there's nowhere I can go. There can be limitations in these, okay? However, the, the freeze response could become a learned form of helplessness. If prior experiences to a perceived threat proved aversive or negative with a fight, 
and or flee response, right? So a trauma survivor may feel overwhelmed with a perceived uh, threat from a noise, such as a car backfiring and or, uh, you know, seeing a vehicle which resembles another from an event. These types of situations can send a trauma survivor into fight, flight, and or free response indoor freeze responses, right? It's it's taking them back. It's the idea of uh, of recall or mental recall, taking somebody back there, tying that in, um, say the example, you know, um, tying that back into a prior event, they're associating that, and then that's in their mind, they're going through fight, flight, and or freeze. What's my best options right now? I do want to go back to the the idea of the freeze response and how it can become a form of, of helplessness, right? Because if we freeze, we shut down, right? So if we keep leaning on that, right, every threat leads us to shutting down. That's where the helplessness is coming from. That's where the, I, I have no power here. I, I might as well just, it's going to be safer for me just to freeze and accept whatever happens. That, that's a scary that's a scary way to live absolutely there's people that have experienced that um, and it's unfortunate um, so when a survivor constantly feels threatened their mind becomes hyper aroused um, another issue with someone feeling constantly threatened is that their ability to remember what happened during events becomes blurry due to the parts of the brain being activated consistently right so this is the idea that, because constantly you're feeling threatened, constantly you're on edge, it's hard to remember the different aspects of, of events going on. Um, and like I said before, when a survivor constantly feels threatened, their mind becomes hyper-arousis constantly. And then it's like, oh, I heard something. There, there, there's something out there, right? Or I'm walking down the street and I hear a car backfiring and I jump on the ground right um say a, a military veteran okay with ptsd for example um here's a car backfiring and it reminds them of of combat right and, and something happening boom jump on the ground get down stay safe even though in that moment everybody else around may be looking at that person say what's going on with them like it was just a car backfiring and their mind boom happens very quickly the reaction right so it's something to think about um, and something that's very real and a lot of people experience. So just briefly, I'm going to touch on Q reactivity and we're going to take a break and we're going to go into how this can affect uh, partners, right, of, of trauma survivors. So Q reactivity, which is the behavioral and or physical responses to emotions and thoughts, right, as well as the smells, images related to traumatic events and or substance use, trauma cues were found to be correlated with PTSD treatment outcomes and severity. These cues can actually evoke or bring about a physical response such as salivating of the mouth and causing cravings for alcohol and drugs, right? This is just an example of, of how they play out in the brain. Um, Substance abuse cues bring about a strong desire to abuse drugs. These cues are similar to trauma cues in that they can bring about, uh, they can be brought about by behavioral and or physical responses. When an individual experiences either trauma and or substance abuse cues, they can increase the likelihood of cravings and relapses. Okay, these cues have 
been found to be correlated with poor treatment participation and outcome. Substance abuse cues or substance use cues um, during a traumatic event or substance abuse, excuse me, during a traumatic event has been found to increase the severity of the event. Okay. Substance use was also found to increase the likelihood of experiencing traumatic events leading to a PTSD diagnosis. Um, timing of trauma experiences also can affect onset of substance use disorders. What's really important, what I want people to get out of that is the cue piece, right? And how they're very similar, they're very similar to substance abuse cues. An example of a substance abuse cue. Um, can be for an alcoholic, for example, driving down the highway or driving down the road, I should say, and going past the liquor store. Visual cue, okay? Um, trauma survivor or, or a trauma cue uh, can be, like I said, car backfiring or seeing a similar vehicle that they remember from, a, from an event, okay? Those are it, and they can bring about physical reactions. <clears throat> So now what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into how um, the trauma survivor's partner uh, are often affected. So I will be right back with the rest of today's episode here on The Marriage Doc. All right, welcome back. So let's get into it. So now we're going to look at the effects on couples specifically, right? Um, in terms of on the partner of the trauma survivor, uh, I do want to make clear that when we're looking at the idea of dual trauma survivors or um, dual trauma couples, right? So again, that's when both partners have experienced some level of trauma. Um, in, in the discussion that we're going to have now or what I'm going to go over is how it can affect the other one of the partners. And this is this is similar, you know, whether or not there's a dual trauma couple. OK, even if it's a single trauma couple. So just keep that in mind. So here's the thing. A lot of this information is very new because previously an individual's trauma experience was thought only to affect them right? It wasn't going to affect your partner, which is very naive, right? I mean, how naive can we be thinking that, um, okay, my my wife is, experiences a traumatic event and I'm not going to be impacted in any way, shape, or form? Um, or, you know, my my wife as a child experiencing tra a traumatic event and as, as we're now married, isn't going to affect me in some way, shape, or form, even if it's just trying to support her or, you know, it can be a lot of different ways. I just think that's very naive of us. However, recent research has shown, okay, romantic partners and significant others are also affected by an individual's trauma experiences. While there's still a lot to, that we need to learn, right, because little is known about the ways that trauma affects couples, um, the social support offered by significant others continues to be an important component in coping with traumatic traumatic stress. Uh, Susan Johnson wrote that um, social supports are number one, no matter what kind of trauma anybody experiences, having social supports around that you can utilize is the most important thing when recovering from trauma. 
So those in a single trauma relationship where one partner has experienced trauma have many struggles in creating a secure attachment with significant others. Some of the reasons being that trauma survivors may struggle with avoidance, having negative thoughts about themselves and feeling disconnected. While there are likely times trauma survivors may desire to be close with their partners, they also struggle with wanting to isolate, excuse me, which can increase their stress levels. So a lot of times what you'll have is this idea of, of I just want to be alone, right? So you'll have this I, desire to be close yet at the same time desire to be apart. Um, and, and isolation a lot of times uh, for trauma survivors is, is a way of survival. It's a coping mechanism. However, you can imagine the negativity that it can play on a relationship. So interestingly, the stress levels not only increase for the trauma survivors, but for their partners as well. So partners of trauma survivors have been found to be prone to depression, anxiety, feeling burned out, sadness, loneliness, and other mental health characteristics. These are some of the reasons that single trauma couples often experience low relationship satisfaction, as well as separation and, and eventually divorce. Uh, interesting component, however, is found that uh, to increase PTSD symptoms is the relationship satisfaction. So basically the idea here is that when um it's it's complicated because on one hand right we want to be with our partners on the other hand and that can increase relationship satisfaction it also increases some symptomology right some anxiety some of those things are going to increase because we're trying to do the things that trauma survivors are not necessarily comfortable in doing um, in single trauma couples, the trauma survivors' perceptions of their own and the partner's satisfaction in the relationship may increase and or decrease symptomology, right? So depending on where things are, the relationship satisfaction may de be dependent for the spouse on their understanding of symptoms exhibited by their partner, um, as well as having an understanding of the trauma experiences by their significant other. Emotional and physical intimacy are important parts which may lead to relationship satisfaction. The trauma survivor actually may struggle with being intimate with their partner, which can lead to further relationship dissatisfaction. Uh, someone with PTSD may struggle with feeling emotionally numb or irritable, which can be a barrier for emotional ch exchanges between the partners, right? So obviously positive communication is an important component in a healthy cu couple relationship and, and obviously been found to improve relationship satisfaction. Um, you know, especially with intimacy, because if you can talk to somebody, you can help them understand the experiences that you've been through, their symptoms, things of that nature. The, the, the partner is better able to support the trauma survivor, and it helps build a healthy connection. This is an issue with single trauma couples in that discussing fears and vulnerabilities is a big struggle, which may increase traumatic stress levels and other symptoms in the trauma survivor. So the trauma survivor may feel shame and guilt regarding their experiences of trauma resulting in potentially avoiding the discussion of the event, reducing their ability for intimacy. So emotional intimacy is, is not the only type of intimacy. You have physical intimacy, which can include touching, sexual activities, uh, as an important part of you know intimacy and relationships. Uh, however, couples with physical intimacy do but not emotional intimacy um, don't necessarily lead to increased relationship satisfaction.
It's also important to understand that if the trauma survivor experiences sexual and or physical abuse, they may not feel safe being touched even by their significant other. So understandably, this can be a barrier and having relationship satisfaction. So this can all kind of go back to the idea of, you know what, a lot of times symptoms will increase when relationship satisfaction increases. And from this information, you could probably draw a pretty good conclusion as to why that is. But it's a necessary piece. Um, one of the big pieces of, again, survivor for survival, excuse me, for a lot of uh, trauma survivors is avoidance. If I avoid in my mind, I feel safe, even though to avoid is to keep one sick, right? Um, so the idea is, you know, over time challenging some of this, working with your partner, talking with your partner. Now, again, it's important to note that this is not clinical advice, Right. This is just some of the research that I've done, some of the information that I have. Um, so working with a, you know, marriage and family therapist, a couples therapist and working through these challenges is going to be really important. So with that being said, that is tonight's podcast. I appreciate everybody who's checked it out. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at marriagedoc.com. Feel free to email me anytime. Check out my, my private practice website, www.themarriagedoc.com. Um, I appreciate no matter what you're listening on, if you're listening on Spotify, if you're listening on um, Google or any other podcast application, I appreciate it. Um, go ahead and leave any reviews. Greatly appreciate those as well. Um, if you have questions, feel free, like I said, to email me. You can also, on the app here, you can leave um, on the Anchor app, that is. I was talking about the others, and I had a, had a moment there. Um, but you can leave a, a voice question. You can leave comment, whatever that is. Um, at the end of the day, I appreciate all listeners, and I hope that you all found this information to be beneficial. I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the day and check out next episode as it comes up. Otherwise, I am out and I hope you all continue to uh, have a great day and I hope that you have a wonderful evening. All right, I'm out. Bye.